Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to Slipstream. I'm your host, Brent Houston. As always, thanks for tuning in to the podcast. It's a, it's a really interesting day here. We're just on the cusp of the weather here in the compound in Hocking Hills, uh, turning cold. So we were about 80 degrees yesterday. Today we're going to be about uh, 65 and we go downhill from here. It's the beginning of that autumn curl. So uh, as always, still here in Sequester, uh, in the lovely Hocking Hills of Ohio, really starting to contemplate, as you know, uh, most of the folks who know me know that once it gets cold, I start contemplating moving south. So this is going to be an interesting episode uh, with me. I have uh, the young man who was the sort of impetus for the Slipstream podcast. Uh, he had asked me for many years to put it together, and uh, it wasn't until the pandemic hit that we kind of started. And uh, at first, it was just a way to kind of talk about the things that uh, I was working on, the things I was listening to, and, and that stuff. But over time, uh, it sort of switched to that mission of helping folks uh, find an, an easier, sort of smarter path to life and success and uh, all of that. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in, I'd like to introduce my good friend, uh, Josh Anderson. Josh, how, we have been friends for, gosh, it seems like over a decade. It has been a decade, maybe a decade and a half. All I remember is you had a lot more hair then, and my hair was still dark, and now it's not. <laughs> Too true. I think uh, that is probably work-related. Uh, and for those of you who don't know uh, uh, Josh very well, uh, I'm hesitating a little bit because I call Josh by a different name. I call Josh Timex, so if that slips out, uh, we call him for his beloved love of uh, timeliness and uh, and time in general. Um, he's sort of adapted that over the years to turn into some combination of Thai and Mexican food, which I understand you've nearly mastered that fusion. It uh, still has work to be done. Well, so have you cooked anything, uh, you know, from the secret kitchen lately that's sort of a surprise? Quarantine has been good for the Instant Pot, the air fryer, and the barbecue grill for sure. I'm telling you, Josh, like you, the, the air fryer has absolutely saved my life. Like if you think about one thing in the kitchen that I've mastered, it's been the air fryer. I... I have now air fried everything from chicken wings like everybody else in the world, but uh, I've tried Oreos. Um, I actually air fried an oatmeal cream pie. It was phenomenal. <laughs> I thought I was a little out there for uh, trying to air fry grilled cheese, but uh, that might take the cake. Grilled cheese is pretty good. I've done burritos, um, but I'm, I'm telling you, you get those, you know, we're talking just a little Debbie oatmeal cream pie, right? And... Uh, Put it in there for two minutes. It turns into this like nice, warm, gooey uh, sort of dessert. It's phenomenal. It's horrible for you. It'll probably kill me before this is all over with. But uh, that's been my favorite air fryer food so far. Well, I always listen to the podcast hoping to learn something. And uh, you picked it up here in the, the fourth or fifth minute today. <laughs> well, I'm at the at the very least. I don't know if it's a life hack, but it'll probably at least uh, keep you fed during the pandemic. So um, that's that's been the oddest one I've tried. Uh, it went over so well, though. I've had a couple of our mutual friends 
uh, Lisa and Dave have both done it as well. They've, um, they've tried the oatmeal cream pie. Dave had to take it to the next level. He, uh, he actually did the double decker one that you can get at, you know, uh, some of the big grocery stores. They have them. It's a extra large oatmeal cream pie about the size of a sandwich, double stacked. And, uh, he, he ran that through for about four minutes and said, uh, he and his wife split it up and they had it with champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I asked Josh to come on today because uh, Josh has some questions that he's put together that were sort of different than the traditional questions that um, I get asked quite often. And uh, it's just a great thing to have you on the podcast, especially since this was sort of your idea. You're the one to blame. Um so uh, thanks for thanks for being on. I mean, I just really appreciate it. It's always good to hang out. No, no, I appreciate it. And speaking on behalf of of really your listeners, I think everybody appreciates the time and effort you've put into uh, sharing us with us a little bit of a glimpse of what's inside your head. And uh, when you mentioned the idea to me, uh, the the notion of uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, or for the uh, under thirty crowd cribs, uh, came to mind. Where you might not want to show off your house, uh, just just uh, you know, just because and show it off yourself. But uh, if you have Robin Leach walking around your house showing it off, it's uh, it's a little more natural and a little more normal. So uh, appreciated the chance to get a little deeper and and maybe uh, some non technical or, or periphery of technical questions today. And um, thought maybe we could just start off by uh, just thanking you for all the interesting creative things you've done in your life. But um, what are you most proud of of all the things you've kind of created, put together, and built? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, uh, you know, I guess I would, I'm going to separate this out into a few things because it's hard to say just one thing. That's like asking you what, you know, which of your kids is your favorite, right? Like, uh, even if you have an answer, you're not really supposed to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, look, I've been incredibly blessed. Uh, I've gotten to spend the last, almost 30 years now, really, um, working in things that excited me. Um, I've built several businesses. I've sold some of them. I've, I've, uh, you know, built out a lot of commercial products and, uh, a lot of content, but I, I would think there are a few things that jump out that are outstanding more than others. Um, the, the first one, is the mentoring. Um, I have gotten to run a mentor program for the last 10 years. Uh, I've had usually between 10 and 12 mentees at any given time. Um, They've been folks that are coming into information security or entrepreneurship from somewhere else. They've been um, folks that are just out of school and and are looking to build some sort of life for them. So the number one thing I would say is the thing that I'm most proud of is the impact that those folks have had. Um, I have been blessed to mentor some just amazing people. Um, and they have gone on to build products and services and businesses and, and work in securing uh, some of the most critical things on the planet. Um, and I just am blessed every day with that. And so I, I think that's the number one thing, if that's fair. But I'll add a couple of others if you'll allow it. 
Of course, of course. And uh, that's that stands on its own. But please, I know there's more. So I, I think the the other thing is uh, I, I really love Honey Point. Um, it's a product that never sort of took off to its full potential. Um, I know now there are, you know, entire companies built around deception tools and honey pots and, and I never, you know, I guess I never took it that far. Um, but I loved the idea and I still love the idea of making fake things, uh, and studying the impacts of things in, in the world. Um, it's just been a fascinating platform to give me access to all kinds of data, to give me access to insights um, that I've used over and over and over again. Um, and so it, it's really hard to say that that's not my, my favorite thing because it, it, it's been great to me over the career. Um, and then it's just, it's just been a ton of fun. Um, the other thing that I am most proud of is I do a whole bunch of pro bono work for uh, folks around human trafficking and crimes against children. Um, and over the years, I've, I've done uh, a variety of work in that space. And, and I think it's that's another thing where I'm just uh, blown away by the lives that we've been able to touch. Um, not always, not always a victory and, um, not always a, a clear win. Uh, but when we do win and when we do help folks, that's a part of my life that, uh, I absolutely embrace and, and very much am proud of, of what I've done there. I, uh, in so much awe of the work you do there and, and so much appreciation for it, I, uh, I, I won't throw a punchline at the end of that and just say, uh, I think, uh, all the security professionals and, and all the listeners get it. And, uh, I think everybody, uh, is grateful for, for the effort and, uh, the, uh, the work you put in there. Um, change gears just a little bit. And, um, let me just ask you, uh, just, Tell me about something that really bugs you, something that, um, you know, could could be big, could be small, but but something that just really gets under your skin and, and rattles you uh, and uh, and has for a while, if, if you could share that. Oh, gosh. Uh, there are two things that come to mind here again. Uh, as you might figure out as we go along, this is never going to be a simple answer. Uh, I think the number one thing that comes to mind is just sort of the way in business uh, things have changed. It, it's... Everybody has become so busy, so self-focused, so continually focused that um, it's it's almost sort of the 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 feeling that the hustle now has taken over uh, business, and the way that that manifests across the board is just people stop being nice to each other. Um, you know, the way that people treat vendors, the way that people treat salespeople, the the way that even people treat coworkers oftentimes in, in organizations, um, it it's not always that they intentionally mean to be rude. It's it's just that they're so busy, so overtasked, so self focused, so myopic that they they sort of forget to be nice to other people. 
Um, and so that's, that's something that just really, uh, you know, really yanks my crank, so to speak, to, to borrow that from family guy. Um, I think the couple of things, if you've seen some of my LinkedIn posts, um, you know, when, when somebody reaches out to you, uh, let's say just to sell a product, right? Like it, salespeople have to sell. That's, that's what they do for a living. Um, I see a lot of folks who are in leadership and line management positions saying, well, I don't want to be contacted for sales on LinkedIn, on social media, on email, on phone. I don't want anybody to mail me anything. Well, how do these sales people, how are they supposed to make a living? Um, and as long as they're being polite and trying to be helpful and trying to add value, I don't see how the constant push against them is is useful. Um, I'll give you an example, and I won't name the company, but there's a company in in the IT space who is just known for having sort of boiler room, you know, phone call, hammering on people all the time, right? Um, I reached out to their uh, CIO about a problem. I was actually reaching not to sell them anything, but reaching out about a problem about their environment. And the guy just unloads on me. Like, don't, I don't want to ever be phone called. I don't want anybody to, you know, email me. There's a process for this, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I literally had to stop and say to the guy, like, you're the CIO of the company with the worst reputation in the industry for, for calling people at home, calling people on Sundays, calling people's personal cell phones. And you don't want to take a call that's meant to be helpful. Um, so as you can tell, this is something that really bothers me. I just want to get back to the point where we're all helpful to one another and where it's okay to reach out and try to talk to people um, and and try to be friendly. I, nobody wants to be, you know, hard sold to. Nobody, nobody wants that. What can I do to send you home with the Cadillac today? Nobody wants that, right? But, but it is okay to have a conversation with someone to try to add value, uh, to try to help that person, or even to ask questions that, you know, could potentially help yourself. That's, that's okay. We, we need that kind of interaction in society. And, um, until we get back to that point where we can have rational discussions, it's really disappointing to see that in, in the world today. No, those are great, and and I think uh, many can uh, empathize uh, with with those answers. Appreciate it. I uh, had a colleague a long time ago that had a license plate that was uh, very simply "Be kind," and I didn't get it at the time. But uh, having worked in uh, a corporate environment for a few years and and uh, around that uh, the push and pull of of uh, the sales space, uh, it's uh, I admire him for it, and I think about it a lot. So no, great great answers. And Josh, have you, have you kind of noticed how the hustle, like hustle porn has kind of taken over business, right? Like the, the idea that we all have to be a hundred percent, I got to make 65 pieces of content a day. I have to, I have to post on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook 12 times in the next six hours. It's, it's just this continual push of more, more, more while creating less content of value um i it it just astounds me it it feels a lot like busy work 
but now it seems like it's a crown, right? Like the more busy I can appear to be, the the more supposed value I am. But I think we've lost track that value comes from sharing something, from like making a meaningful impact and not just from posting the next six pictures of whatever you got out of the vending machine and, and your thoughts on dog hairdos. It's a great point. I think it's um, a little bit of the circumstances of social media in general and um, also the free marketing that comes with it. But uh, now it's it's a great point. And um, I think some of the articles or, or commentary that you've posted about um, proper ways to engage or giving people the right way to do it is uh, great guidance. And uh, I think if, uh, if folks can band together and get that message out, I, I think it would uh, truly help to, to steer things back to a, a productive uh, side of that. One of the things I think that's very interesting is the idea that, like, these social media networks, you know, and I was a big proponent of social media in the beginning. I mean, I, I, I really thought Twitter would change the world, and I feel like it has done that. And, um, uh, but I'm astounded at how much drift has occurred in social media, um, not just not just in business, right, but in day to day life and in, um, you know, sort of of the usage. I've come up with this idea that there's a postulate that sort of uh, all social media networks will eventually drift toward the center personalization of their average consumer. Um, like you're seeing this on LinkedIn right now. You see these folks that are trying to resist it, that are saying, you know, LinkedIn's a business network. But, I mean, I've got thousands of followers on LinkedIn and I see the stuff that they post. I mean, it's turned into there are people posting recipes. There are people posting um, dating advice and applica- applications, you know. Um, and I just think it's a natural process that, that we're going to uncover where any of these networks of communication are sort of going to drift to the lowest common denominator. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think in some ways it's had to grow to the masses to find out what the middle is. Um, I think uh, the more that, um, again, you, you get a mix of, of personal use, you get a mix of it being a marketing platform, it uh, it just gets noisy and that um, uh, becomes maybe a less relevant uh, way to share things. But uh, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, I think it's something that um, you have to uh, then – kind of give it a value score and, and weigh it appropriately as a, as an information resource or as a business resource or as a personal resource. So Josh, I mean, you're, you've, you've got an extensive family. Um, how do you handle social media with the kids? I mean, do they, do you allow them access to that kind of stuff? And, and how, how do they respond when they see some of this stuff on social media? They're young. And, and thankfully my answer to that is not yet. Um, we, uh, if, if there's anything relevant, we read it together, um, and, uh, they don't follow threads or, or, you know, commentary yet, but, uh, it's coming. And, um, I think it's something that will be a whole new experience. Um, it was one thing to grow into it as an IT professional, as a, as a human on this planet, but, um, it'll be a whole nother to uh, kind of see it through their eyes. And I, you know, I see it in my goddaughters. It's, it's amazing, how quickly they pick up on it and, um, how, you know, what a huge part of their life. Like I was astounded at how quickly TikTok took off, right? Like this thing, I hadn't heard of it. The next week, here it is. It pops up on my radar 
And it seemed like, you know, a couple of weeks after that, it was literally everywhere. Um, and it's become a central part of a lot of folks' lives. I, I look at the amount of content that that network in particular is generating. And of course, all the, you know, all of the controversy around its use. Um, I, I just am astounded at how quickly some of these things get adopted. And, and, um, the other interesting thing about TikTok, did you notice that at first it was really geared toward kids, right? Like it was the, the sort of tween, um, network of choice. But then did you see how quickly, uh, it, it, businesses embraced it. And then all of a sudden there were like these marketing campaigns that were being driven by TikTok content. I think the combination of, of business marketing and celebrity, um, were, were two, I guess you'd say expected, but, um, unexpected at the, the, how, how quickly they adapted and, and, um, added maybe an effective voice to it. So no, I, I think for sure, for sure. And that, that's sort of an interesting outgrowth of that whole, um, influencer culture, right? That like came about right after Instagram. Um, and then, you know, it, it goes everything from, I suppose to some extent, you know, probably even people like me, right? Like a career people, people who are trying to mentor and help others, I suppose, uh, minor league, uh, influencers, but all the way to, you know, you've got people now whose whole career in life is I'm going to be an Instagram or a TikTok influencer. And, um, you know, they're building these personal brands that are astounding. It, I don't know where this goes. I, I really, um, I really am quite intrigued by that sort of influence culture and tying back to that earlier thing, how do we get back away from a uh, myopic view, right? And, and back to a society based on rational dialogue, based on caring about one another. Um, and I just don't, I, I think it's going to be a big question for folks that are younger than us today and looking forward over the next several years. How do you bring that openness, right, um, into a cultural shift back toward kindness um, using this technology. Because I think, it, it seems to me anyway, um, that these technologies of allowing us to share our innermost thoughts um, and to appear in ways that we really want to appear, uh, that there's a maturity curve. And so I think in, in this instance we're we're in the toddler phase of this sort of mechanism as a society and the initial toddler phase right is the id it's all about me and i think this technology will eventually mature into its use and maybe at least i want to believe that maybe someday we'll turn this into a level setting platform that uh, creates that sort of society fabric that we, that we want and we'll move out of this immature. It's all about me and what I think and feel and influence our culture. No, that's, that's perfect. Um, and actually you might've uh, walked right into my next question if I could. Um, and it, it, my question was, you're a pretty eclectic guy. What's something you want to learn more about? 
Um, what's, what's next on your plate to learn? Um, maybe it's an influencer or maybe you can release the first video edition of this podcast into your next TikTok dance. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll move it into that question as well. What's something you want to learn more about? So, um, this is actually a pretty easy question for me to answer. Um, I have spent the last couple of years, um, really working on something called machine assisted learning. And, um, essentially if you take a combination of, of e-learning, right, the idea that we're going to do, you know, school, schooling or that you're going to consume curriculum in an online fashion, um, and you combine that with the rapid skills acquisition sort of movement that's happening. Um, I've been working on systems and tools and processes to allow everybody to partake of rapid skills acquisition um, of any skill is the vision um, based on dynamically generated, autonomously generated uh, curriculum. So the idea that, for example, I want to learn uh, to windsurf um, allows me to essentially generate in some form a on-the-fly windsurf curriculum that meets the sort of 80-20 approach, um, the Pareto principle approach. So it's going to look out there in the world, find all of the resources needed for learning to windsurf, tear that down to the basic skills that are required, and dynamically build and present to me customized, personalized, rapid skills acquisition content to allow me to master, not master, become proficient in that skill in a very short amount of time. And it doesn't matter what the skill is. I just used windsurfing as an example. It could be learning Spanish. It could be uh, learning to crochet, uh, whatever it is. Um, I'm greatly intrigued by the idea of rapid skills acquisition and the value that that can bring to the world. Um, and I do think that it's possible now with machine learning and linguistic analysis and, and all of the content in the world, um, I think it's possible to build out that type of dynamic uh, learning mechanism. I thought you were going to say sourdough bread, but we'll, we'll accept it. <laughs> Well, no, I used to be interested in sourdough bread. I actually spent a great deal of time learning to make bread um, back in the early 90s, but that's a skill I've uh, I've put a stern, so to speak. That's that's awesome. Um, all right. Let's lighten it up for a second. Do you know any good jokes? Yeah. You want to hear a good joke? I think we all do. All right. Here you go. There's two snakes, and they're sliding through the woods. And the one snake looks at the other snake and he says, hey, do you know are we poisonous? And the snake says, I, I don't think so. Why? And the first snake says, I just bit my tongue. <laughs> I, will, I will give the groan on behalf of the, the whole, whole viewership. All right. Well, you're talking about uh, snakes in the woods. Um, what's your spirit animal? Wow, that is a great question. So... Um, I, I'm sitting here in the compound, uh, and I'm surrounded by images of canids, so wolves and coyotes and uh, dogs. So I would have to say 
probably some form of canid. Um, but the other thing that uh, I I share a great affinity with are sea turtles. Um, and uh, if you picked one of the things that uh, I I do can a lot of contribute. Uh, contributions to, uh, it is saving sea turtles and, um, sea turtle, sea turtle conservancy. Um, and if you've never been, there's a fantastic sea turtle conservation, uh, location at Jekyll Island, Georgia. They do a lot of, uh, research on sea turtles and sea animals. Um, and they are one of my favorite charities. That's awesome. Awesome. All right. Um, you, you obviously do a lot of things that help people, um, a lot of contributions to things, but um, hopefully you get some feedback. What, what's the best compliment you've ever received? Gosh, um, there are two things that come to mind. Um, I'll, I'll give you the uh, career one first. Um, so uh, at one point, I worked for uh, the Department of Energy, and um, I was doing some development of penetration testing techniques and information security and doing some penetration testing on different parts of uh, DOE. And um, I got to work with Secretary Richardson at the time. Uh, he, of course, would later go on to be the governor of New Mexico and uh, a presidential candidate. Um, but uh, he started calling me uh, his hacker junkyard dog. And um, I always took that as a, as sort of a, a very funny uh, inference. Uh, but a couple of times he actually, <laughs> he uh, once he brought me a collar and another time um, he brought me a couple of little, plastic dogs like kids play with. Um, and I thought it was very endearing. It was a, it was a very uh, uh, great situation and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and eventually I started an information security forum called uh, InfoSec Junkyard Dogs and that ran for several years. Um, and it was a, a great training platform for a lot of folks uh, that were coming into the security industry in the mid to late 90s. That's awesome. That's awesome. Any, uh, now you mentioned professional. Any other, uh, any other compliments come to mind? Um, yeah. So, um, just in the last, uh, couple of months, uh, I got to meet with a mentor of mine. Um, he had gotten ill and, um, uh, we got to meet and I told him I hadn't seen him in many years and um, he was actually a high school teacher of mine, and I kept in touch with him uh, for many years. Um, and he told me that I was the most challenging student he'd ever had in his entire 40 year of teaching. Um, and I thought that was, uh, at first I didn't know what to say. I, I wasn't sure if that was a good or a bad thing. But um, he went on to tell me that I was so inquisitive and I had um, asked so many questions and I, I would force him to answer uh, that he felt like I made him a better teacher. And that was one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. That's awesome. Very cool. 
Well, you've, you've mentioned um, some, some successes. You mentioned some things you're proud of. Any, uh, any confessions you want to make here today? Um, possibly could you tell us one of your biggest professional, you know, gaffes, your uh, professional oops moment? Um, certainly don't violate any NDAs or, um, don't, don't incriminate yourself if it's been less than seven years, uh, or, or other statute of limitations. But, um, is, is there a good one you could share? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was working for a client. Uh, this is early in my penetration testing career. Um, and uh, this was a pretty high-powered client. Um, came in to do a uh, assessment. And in doing so, uh, I did some ping sweeps and port scans of the network. Uh, which is pretty common. So for those of you who aren't technical folks, this is, these are just tools to try to figure out what is on the environment, um, on the network itself so that you know what you have out there to break into. Um, that activity crashed the elevator control system and trapped the head of that agency in the elevator and then they had to be rescued by firemen. Um, it, it was the first and last day of that engagement and, um, uh, it was a, it was a valuable, uh, sort of lesson in humility. And, uh, to this day, I still joke about it. Um, I, I still see this person occasionally and we joke about it. Um, but, uh, that was a, that was a very telling moment, uh, um, Another one, um, I can tell you, for those of you who don't recall this one, um, I lead a team of folks who uh, break into things, and um, that's, what, that's what we do. Uh, so um, the team performed a social engineering exercise uh, where we created these CDs that were uh, labeled with a certain government agency, um, their brand, and uh, they were supposed to be updated regulations for the people that this agency manages. Um, we shipped those out to these uh, folks that were managed, and the CDs were infected with simulated malware uh, so that they would take over uh, the systems that they were installed in. This was all part of a contracted penetration test. Um but uh, by accident, the, some of the folks that got the CD uh, didn't realize that it was a part of this test that was going on. And so they reported that, and that spun up a bunch of national-level incident response folks and legal folks um, and, and uh, caused a little bit of a gaffe there. Uh, and I, I deeply regret that, even though I still think it was a valid test, and I, and I'm I am sorry that I offended the federal agency in question by using their brand and their logo. Um, but most of all, I'm sorry for spinning up uh, these resources that spent a great deal of time as if this were a nation state level attack, uh, when in fact it was really just a simulated part of a test. Um, and uh, so that that's a professional gaffe. And you can read all about that if you search my name. There's still articles that get written about it um, from time to time. It's, it's out there in the media. 
Well, I appreciate you sharing those. It's uh, you know, it's one thing to sit and interact with your screen all day or, or push an enter key at the end of a line, but um, once it starts to have some real, real world ramifications, it uh, it uh, it gets real. So I appreciate you sharing those. I I think we've all been there in in some capacity, but uh, those are those are pretty good. Appreciate it. All right, so let's let's get hypothetical for a minute. You're stranded on a desert island. For entertainment, you have a crank to power music player. What would you take with you preloaded on that? Would you take the entire library of one artist or three songs of your choice? And uh, what are they? Oh, well, I'm going to give you a more embarrassing answer than you asked for. I would take the album Living in Oz by Rick Springfield. (laughs) And I think I'll ask on behalf of the entire uh, listener uh, population why. So... To learn that little story, we have to go back to the summer of 1987. Uh, I think we all have a summer that stands out in our lifetime. Um, that sort of one golden summer uh, where everything just goes right. And for me, that was that summer. Um, but that album, every song on that album, for whatever reason, has some sort of synchronicity and and deep meaning to me. Um and so if I had to pick that solution, I would just take with me Living in Oz by Rick Springfield. Now, that said, I'm not a Rick Springfield fan. I've never seen him live. Uh, it's just the timing of that single album. Um, and yes, it's still on my iPod today on my iPhone. I listen to it very frequently. Thank you for uh, sharing so personally and so deeply. I uh, tongue, very, very much tongue-in-cheek. That's a great answer. Not and um, if you haven't you. listened to Living in Oz, uh, Timex, you should check that out. Uh, it's a great album. Um, but uh, there's a lot of really good stuff on there. And uh, I think um, I think listening to it will give you a new appreciation for life in the late 80s. And now, you know, I, I guessed the answers to most of these questions I, I predicted so I'm going to cross out Michael Bolton and write in Rick Springfield. I, I think that's a good win. Um, if I had to take the catalog of one artist, it would be Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I'm stuck on an island. I mean, what does seems like that's fitting. And on this, you know, theoretical island, you know, is there a is there a margarita machine? Do I have to put the coconuts together like on Gilligan? That's part two. Oh, okay. And and then my other question is. You know, on this on this theoretical island, this rhetorical island, uh, you know, do I get to wear a swimsuit or, you know, is it a business suit or, you know, this seems to be a common question among my listeners and the folks who know me. There seems to be this inordinate focus on my wardrobe from time to time. And I I have to tell you, uh, folks that are that listen to the podcast or whatever. Um, I pay no attention to fashion, so I essentially dress the same now as I did in 1987. And um, uh, this is one of those things that uh, people joke about. A uh, number of our friends from uh, the information security community absolutely love to uh, ridicule my wardrobe. And, and uh, one of the favorite sports is, uh, I guess, to guess what I'm going to wear at any given event. Um, I think that's hilarious and awesome, and I appreciate uh, that no one understands my fashion behind uh, advice. 
No, and, and since you since you asked me with, with some level of authority, I would say the answer is you have to wear a swimsuit, not to get to wear a swimsuit. So uh, I, I think we would have some minimum standards, but uh, hopefully you get a chance to pack uh, the wardrobe to match the music. Well, then it's always board shorts, right? Like, you know, knee-length board shorts and, uh, you know, just a nice uh, Comfort Colors t-shirt. I really enjoy that brand, Comfort Colors. Um, I don't have any association with them. I, you know, I, I do own some shares of, uh, you know, uh, of some fashion companies, but they're not among them. So, um, but, uh, th- that's, that's my wardrobe, that and a pair of flip flops. That's great. All right. A couple of quick industry questions for anybody that's a stickler and they're listening for that. I need to get some business value today. Um, I want to share a, a, a statement that was made to me. Um, it was it was a, a security professional that had left information security, gone into compliance for a little while, and come back. Um, I was working for him, and, and he made this statement that um, the people in information security, no, no wonder we get frustrated, no wonder we get burnt out. We're dealing with exactly the same issues we were 10 or 15 years ago. And I don't know what it was about that statement, but I, I wanted to refute it right away. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe he's onto something. And then the more I thought about it, I wanted to refute it. Maybe it's a good topic for a conference someday. Maybe it's a good topic for a book. But how do you feel about that? And do you feel like InfoSec is getting anywhere or are we really dealing with the same issues uh, that we were 10 or 15 years ago? So let me ask you a question. What is the root cause of most of most compromises and breaches today? I would assume that uh, human error, lack of following process. Yep, okay. And and then after that, what is it? It's passwords, right? Stolen passwords, leaked passwords, right? And then malware. If you went back to 1980s, what were the three, top three problems? Human error, human mistakes, passwords, and at that time it was all new, right? Viruses and worms and outbreaks. So in this time, we've invented all this really cool stuff, right? We've got next generation firewalls and we've got devices that shoot lasers and we got packet filters and we got blah, 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 blahs, right? Over and over and over again. But the core problems haven't changed. They they haven't really shifted. Maybe there's some new vulnerability flavors of the day. Um, but in reality, the core problems haven't changed. So for all the work that we've done, the, the mechanisms might have shifted, but the problems are still there, and they're going to be there long after we're gone. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story here. So when I turn, I'm, I'm now, I'm in my 50s. So when I turned 40, I really struggled with this because I thought to myself, man, we've spent all this time. I've spent my whole career doing this and I thought I would have it solved. And I met with a friend of ours named Kent King. We both know Kent very well. And if you're an information security person in central Ohio, you probably know Kent very well. And Kent explained to me that my whole thought process around the idea that we were ever going to solve this thing was irrational. And I came to believe him. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we get disillusioned. That doesn't mean that it's okay to get burned out because we're working on the same problems. In my mind, what that means is that we have to accept some realities. Crime's always going to exist. Cyber, as long as there's going to be computers and networks, there's always going to be a part of crime. We're never going to be able to get rid of that. What we can do is try to come up with new situations, new scenarios. We can try to teach people better. We can engage with each other in some powerful way. We can try to keep coming up with new solutions to the problems. We can force the bad actors to change tactics. We can force them to reinvest in their activities in such a way that drives up their cost to perform the crime. So if you think of this in economic terms, we can, we can lower the return on investment of different types of crime and force them to raise new capital and invest in new types of crime. That's the best we can hope for. Well, once we recouched that at 40, it gave me another 10 years in this industry and maybe beyond. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm spinning down more than spinning up, but I still am interested in the problem because of that. What it made me realize is that information security practitioners and, and the, the risk management industry in general IT, um, they tend to be very myopic. They're focused on just these sorts of problems. But it's going to take cross-disciplinary approaches. We're going to need people who are skilled not just in technology, but in sociology and psychology. And they need to understand economics. They need to holistically understand the science of incentives. We need to continually apply multidisciplinary techniques, mental models. For example, some of the models that we've talked about on this podcast that you can apply to business, that you can apply to your life, Things like the Pareto Principle, things like Jacobian Version, things like First Principles, things like the Red Queen Process. All of these sorts of mental models can be applied in information security in new ways. And that still, after all these years, that still gets me excited. I want to see what we can do. I want to play with the bad guys in a new way. I want to apply some of these techniques. I want to study and create a hypothesis, build experiments, and learn from that, and then publish that out to the world. That's still why I get up every morning, and it's still why I'm interested in information security. So are we still fighting the same battles? Sure. Are we going to fight those same battles forever? Sure. But it all comes down to do you have the gut check in you to take up a multidisciplinary approach, apply the scientific principle, and keep learning about what it is that we do. That's the same thing in information security. It's the same in entrepreneurship. It's the same in life hacking. It's the same in being a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's awesome. Um, I, I don't know if I've articulated it that way in my head. I suspected the answer lied somewhere in how the tools have improved and how the um, – 
we've been got we've gotten better as an industry at evaluating the value of our actions. But um, a big thanks to Mike uh, in Northwest Indiana. If you're listening, um, it's not too often you can get a 10 year question inside somebody's head as uh, as a leader. And uh, I appreciate uh, being being challenged in those ways. And I uh, really appreciate your answer, Brent, because that's about the closest uh, I've come to, to hearing it uh, fully articulated. Look, the answer is just multidisciplinary approaches. Um, we, we've got to have as, as much as we as a society need folks to focus, right? And we need, yes, we need people who are really good at whatever it is, domain of knowledge, insert domain of knowledge here. Um, we also need people who develop multidisciplinary skill sets and apply them holistically, and we need more, we need more application of the of the scientific method. I mean, that's we need that all around. There's so little of the universe in the world, and I don't want to get all preachy about this, but there's so little about the actual world that we understand. There's still so many questions, and there's so much value still in questions. I think one of the most interesting dynamics that I've seen over the last 20 years is watching the value of answers fall. Now, as long as you know the question, you can Google anything, you can search engine, you can grab thousands of different people's thoughts around this concept, but the the power is still in the question, coming up with the questions. And so if you go back in the podcast you can listen. I've done a couple of episodes where I talked about some of the, the questions that I use every day. I actually carry around with me a list of about 25 different questions that I ask myself literally every day. When I have a scenario, when I have to make a decision, I have this list of questions that I ask myself. And those questions have become the most valuable thing in my resource and toolkit. So I would urge you, look at multidisciplinary approaches, learn more about mental models, and start actually applying them in your life because the, the, the return value is immense. And if you, if you just give it a shot, if you, if you just try this multidisciplinary approach, you'll never go back because it would be like trying to clap with one hand. Um, it, it, it really is an, it's a superpower. That's that's awesome. I appreciate uh, appreciate the advice. All right. Well, we've probably talked about this um, in in many different ways so far, but um, same same thing. And again, um, for for the anyone listening for CPE credit, we'll we'll keep it uh, industry related. The adage is that uh, IT professionals, security professionals, are working on things that are now to five years out. Um, you know, if you're lucky, you, you can affect five years. Um, government labs, college professors. Um, people doing research are working on things that are more like 15 years out. Is that the right balance? And is there anything that we should be doing to broaden that gap for uh, the, the respective industries that we protect or uh, build technology for? And, and um, just do we have the focus right? And are there any actions we should take to change that focus? So, look, um, there is no 10 years out. There is no five years out. There is no three years out. There's only right now, today. And if we're thinking about what is it that we can do today to make a change, that is what I think is the most powerful and important. Sure, 
can we look at the horizon and say, I'm going to do all this research, I'm going to build these solutions, I'm going to try to predict what the problems are. That has proven to be somewhat valuable, but there's so much dynamism at the horizon that a lot of times what you see are folks pivoting, 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 pivoting. And if you go back again, not to tout the podcast again, but if you go back, I've talked a little bit about the execution spectrum. The idea that uh, you've got folks over here who are just contemplative and you've got folks over here who are 100% tactical, um, that the answer to some of that stuff lies in the middle. I don't think the mix is right. I think we have a lot of folks who are focused on distant horizons and that's either a form of procrastination or it's a form of wishful thinking when we have plenty of near side problems that we could address if we would just do the work of addressing it i'm also this huge believer absolute believer in the pareto principle the idea that 20% of the work that we put in gets 80% of the results. So I think that if we would just bring more folks to finding that 20% and executing for the near term, we could solve a lot of those long-term problems and we could test a lot more hypotheses about how to solve some bigger problems if we would just start trying to solve problems in the near term. Look, people got a lot of talent in this world, and there's a lot of really smart and brilliant and talented and engaged folks. But it's really imperative that we get people thinking about what they can do to make change and to solve problems. And until we empower folks to do that in the near term and see near term results, I think it's going to be difficult to keep people engaged in making real change. Did that make sense? It, it absolutely does. And um, I think uh, the way you, you teed it up is it's a, it's a different way of thinking about it. And um, uh, I, I think that's uh, some, some great words to, to close on today. I'll uh, just simply thank you for sharing the microphone today, um, taking a little bit different angle, going a little deeper for, for all of us, and uh, I'll let you bring it home. Well, I would say, first of all, thank you for doing this, and thank you for inspiring the podcast. It's turned into a joy. Um, and I don't want the podcast to be about me. Um, the podcast is about these tools, these techniques, this way of thinking, multidisciplinary approaches, using mental models, finding shortcuts, separating the important from the urgent. Um, these are things that I think have huge impacts on life, no matter what career you're in, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a policeman, or whether you're in information security and IT. Um, and so I thank you very much for allowing me to, to talk about some of these uh, things in a more deep way. Um, I thank you for being a part of the first long-form uh, slipstream podcast that we've had. This is, uh, we've been at this 55 minutes so far, um, and it's been an absolute joy. Um, I, 
look, Josh, we've been friends a long time, and I really appreciate uh, all of your support and help. And thank you for helping me put the podcast together. Thank you. Well, folks, we're wrapping up here. It's been almost an hour. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for always for listening to the Slipstream. I hope you got something out of this. If you have some questions or feedback or if there's more things that you want to hear about or that you'd like to address on the podcast, more mental models that you'd like to cover or life hacks, uh, reach out on the socials. I'm at LB Houston on almost all the socials and you can, you can hit me up out there. Feel free to disagree with anything I've said here. Tell me I suck. Tell me, uh, Tell me what you think um, or how this uh, helped or didn't help you. Um, always feel free to reach out to Timex. Uh, Timex, where can folks find you uh, on on social media? LinkedIn works best, but uh, as you've mentioned, the uh, Thai and Mexican restaurants work too. All right. So if you if you find a Thai fusion place with Mexican, almost always look in the back, and that's where you'll find Timex. He'll be hanging out back there, giving some secrets. Of uh, are so. Josh, are you going to have a cable TV show where you cook some of these, like maybe a, you know, or a YouTube channel where you cook some of these dishes? I'm considering an audio podcast. Uh, you know, I mean, I know I've been teasing you about this for a while, but some of the stuff you've come up with is really quite amazing. I, um, I love the, I love fusion food to start with. And, um, I love the fact that you're exploring the culinary arts, uh, and pushing those boundaries. Just uh, trying to cook enough food to keep uh, six kids interested is, is uh, the main motivation. Well, hey, it could be chicken nuggets, right? So, you know, it could be worse. All right. They air fry, they air fry as well. Well, thank you for listening, folks. Um, we'll see you again soon. In the meantime, catch you in the slipstream. Take care of yourselves.